This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We don't like to talk about this too often, but sometimes it just needs to be said. Every follower of Jesus has difficult and painful challenges from other people as a result of them actually choosing to follow Jesus. Every follower of Jesus Christ has difficult and painful challenges that result from other people because they're actually following Jesus themselves. And, you know, in most of our minds, we, we shy away from thinking about this as persecution. Uh, we tend to only want to use that term for the heart-wrenching violence or bloodshed that, that we see with other Christians around the world, or maybe occasionally with a, a big profile court case out of Colorado or, or Washington State or the like, where, where people are having their livelihoods threatened because of their faith. We don't tend to think that slander or rejection is big enough to warrant a term like persecution. After all, you know, many times uh, we aren't even sure exactly why we're suffering. We're not sure exactly why they, they made that comment. Did it have to do with how I'm living? Is that why they dropped my friendship? Did it have to do something with how I'm following Jesus? Or was it something else? For those reasons and more, when we think about persecution or maybe a related term like exile or sojourner or alien, describing our situation as Christians that we're outsiders in this world and that we shouldn't be surprised when we are treated as such, it doesn't quite seem to click. Uh, we hear talk of being an, an alien, a stranger in this world full of others who aren't followers of, of Jesus, and, and yet I'm not sure that we find ourselves thinking, oh yeah, that's me, Right? This First Peter stuff, this applies to me. Uh, they're, they're talking about me. The rejection that I got for doing what was right or, or good there was a version of persecution. I'm not sure that we think like that. And I'm not sure that we like to or want to think like that. But in John 15 and 16, Jesus was actually quite clear about this, you know, with his disciples, that in this world they would have trouble. They would have trouble. And, and, and if the world hates them, they should keep in mind that, that actually it hated him first. And that if the world persecuted him, they will persecute us also. And so I think that we need to come to terms with Christ's words on this hard topic that we don't like to talk about. We need to have the lenses to look at rejection or slander in our lives adjusted by the scriptures. The lenses that we're looking at these things with, we need to have them cleared up so that we can see our situation clearly. And while we may not be experiencing, you know, bloodshed or some big court case or something like that, we, we oftentimes can be finding ourselves struggling. We may not be thinking or identifying easily with a term like exile that a Christian really is that they are an outsider, but we need to come to terms with it. 
that being marginalized, rejected, or feeling like a misfit, even in our own home, because of your faith, is actually a natural result of following Jesus. Moments like having maybe your adult son look at you, like you've got a third eye because you're believing in the Bible, or maybe um, being a teenager in high school and becoming the butt of every joke because you're actually trying to pursue Christian purity, or maybe being passed over at work because you won't compromise on your faith, are all examples of persecution, of rejection and slander that's par for the course in following Jesus. Why? Because following Christ will inevitably put you and I on a track for colliding at times with the values and the decisions and the practices of this world. So in one sense, hopefully, there is a certain amount of persecution. There is a certain amount of collision that's, that's happening in your world because you're following Jesus. And how we handle that collision and its effects is exactly what the letter of 1 Peter is all about. And this morning, I want specifically for us to hone in on the truth and the direction that Peter gives us in dealing with rejection and the sense of being a misfit because of our faith that we experience. And on that cheery note, <laughs> I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 with me as we pick things up in part 3 of our series, Alien. Uh, which, by the way, for, for you sci-fi buffs in here, I did try to get them to, you know, use some Star Trek or X-File, you know, kind of music with the intro video. But, unfortunately, it was vaporized upon first contact. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Now, in this portion of the letter, Peter, this fisherman turned disciple of Jesus, and then apostle and leader in the early church, he's addressing these misfits, gathered in these little house churches uh, throughout Asia Minor, and having reminded them of their great hope of salvation because of Christ's redemption, he begins to move towards their present situation with something that's of great comfort. In verse 4, we pick things up. He says, As you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined or appointed to do. Now, with that last verse, as we look at it, the meaning here with stumbling, that is the set of consequences for, for the disobedience, one's rejection of Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, these consequences at the very least as part of what is predetermined, or appointed to occur. 
He continues in verse 9, though. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, the richness of this particular second section here is tremendous. It has terrific depths in every line that we'll come back to part of it here. But Peter, he finishes here from moving from our relationship with Christ, the relationship with Christ and the individual Christian, to Christ in the Christian community, to finally this individual Christian, the Christian community, with those outside those in the world. Verse, verse 11, we pick this up. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct with, uh, conduct among the Gentiles, those outside the church, honorable so that they may speak, so that when they may speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In studying this passage, I found myself um, amazed and challenged by the intricacies of this text. Uh, for those of you who are becoming you know, more familiar with your Bibles, maybe you're following along in this first Peter study, uh, you might be sensing this too, that, that we are treading in deep waters. I found myself this past week thinking that, you know, if the gospel accounts, these, these amazing, these beautiful stories, if they were like lures with brilliantly sharp hooks, then Paul's letters would be like these intense logical ladders, and that would make Peter's works like these intricate spider webs of carefully chosen words woven together. And as we begin to unravel this particular web, I want to pull on a couple of threads. First, Note how he identifies us with Christ. How he identifies us with Christ. Being accepted by God and rejected by the world is like a door. That on one side says entrance and on the other side says exit. Right? For the Christian, this door is Jesus Christ. As we come to him and through him, we are made acceptable to God and simultaneously unacceptable to the world. Just like Christ. And Peter weaves that all the way through these verses. Second thread. Notice the sacred assembly that he keeps drawing out here. That through this identification with Christ, that these people, that who they are now, that they're now misfits because they've gone through the door, that they will continue to be misfits in this world as they follow Jesus, but that they now have a home. And that home is in the presence of God. It's in the presence of God. Uh, that's why Peter, throughout this passage, he keeps using all these qualifiers. You know, he's calling them a holy and royal priesthood. That's because God's in the midst. He calls them a spiritual house, a chosen race, a holy nation, and so forth. For these misfits, rejected by the world, they're their people and their culture, their families. It's like God is saying, listen, I know the world doesn't want you. They don't want you anymore. You don't fit out there anymore. I know that. But I want you in here. The world may not want you, but I want you. 
great comfort that that is for the believer to know that with Christ, we are accepted. It's the greatest honor that there is. In him, you won't be put to shame, but you'll find a new home, a new family, a new nation, and a new way. This is unique. It's set apart. Third and final threat. Taken together, this displays God's greatness to the world. His holiness, his presence, and his mercy, it's demonstrated to a world that's rejecting him, his people, and his message, and his mercy. It's demonstrated to the, to the world that's rejection, uh, that's rejecting all of that. As we take these threads together in hand, the, the one point that I want to make this morning, I want all of us to be able to walk away from this morning with, is very simply this. Our new identity shapes us for a holy community that displays God's glory. Our new identity, it carves us out, it pulls us out, and it shapes us for a holy community, a community that's set apart, that's, that's different, that displays God's glory. Think about this from Peter's metaphor with the stones here. I, I haven't done uh, a lot of brickwork in my life. Hard to believe, I know. Um, the most brickwork I've ever done is with Lego bricks. But, um, but I do understand the concept of a cornerstone, all right? In Peter's day and age, a cornerstone was not just some really nice brick that carved, you know, you carved a couple of dates into, okay? It's much more than that. In fact, it was the first stone, right? Specifically picked out for this building. And what you would do is you would take every other stone that a builder might want to work with, and it would be measured against the size of the cornerstone. This stone specifically chosen. It now set the standard. And so in the metaphor, it's as if the world looked at Jesus and said, he doesn't measure up. We don't want him. We don't want to build with him. This isn't what we're after. But God looked at Christ and his work, and it's like he's saying, it's not just that I want you. You're going to be the cornerstone. You're going to be the stone that everything else is measured against now. This measuring, it's holiness. So all of us who wouldn't measure up to being used by God in his building have the opportunity to now believe in Jesus, to identify with the stone that the world rejected and God accepted, and that through that become an acceptable stone for God to use by his mercy. It's as if through Jesus, the impossible has happened, that the brick has been reshaped, repressed into a mold that God can use for his building purposes. We can be made holy. And the assembly of that holiness through Jesus displays God's glory. The only God could take the otherwise worthless stones of this world, that's us, and shape them into something that is an edifice of all of his excellence, to declare his glory to the world around him, to shape them into that. Only God can do it. And so, bottom line, friends, this is about holiness. We've been shaped for holiness, to declare God's holiness through the holiness of Jesus Christ. 
And when you and I grasp the reality of that truth, that our new identity has been shaped for this holy community that displays God's glory, our response as misfits is amazement at the honor that it is to be a part of his work, to show others how great then his work is. And practically... You can see this in the growth of our thinking, that, that as we begin with the starting point, that at least that the, in this world, at least, there is one person, for the believer, there is one person who accepts you, who loves you, who wants you, who wants the best for you. And because of that, he's brought you into his family in which you will never be thrown out of. It begins with that starting point, and then it grows all the way to the other end of the line of realizing that because of who has chosen me, that I've been the recipient of an outlandish honor to be enfolded into all that God is doing to declare the excellencies of who this new father is. And friend, when we grasp that our God didn't just give us the unlovely, the the unacceptable, new acceptance and a new identity, but he gave us the greatest honor that there is of being a part of displaying his glory, that changes us. It changes us. Seeing a fuller and fuller picture of that reality in the face of the world's rejection, marginalization, humiliation, it does wonders for our soul as we push through that to a much better offer, as it were. So let's make sure that then we see how this truth applies to us personally and as a community and with our interactions with those outside the church community. Because although we can summarize this truth real easily, it has a hard time making the 18-inch trek from our head to our heart. So let's dig into this. Let's consider the first one personally not measuring up, not measuring up personally. I appreciate the story one Christian counselor shared regarding this issue of our insecurities as Christians personally in this world. He wrote, it too can be found most anywhere. I know a 60-year-old woman who loves people well. She listens and asks good questions. Her conversations quickly move to important matters. Recently, another woman simply asked, Could you tell me your story? The tables had turned. She was accustomed to asking rather than revealing. Now the conversation was about her. In response, her mind reeled. Life with an alcoholic father, never being enough, a resume with no worldly accomplishments, a loser through and through. Her life flashed before her, and all she saw was failure. When failures accumulate, they do become an identity. Who would have known that right under the surface of her competent care for others was an abiding sense of failure? Sound familiar? Maybe too familiar? Age, helping others, and success don't weed out our insecurities. Church, this world is broken to begin with, And when you add to that the failures and the humiliations that we experience, you have a recipe for insecurity as we start to fear rejection personally and perhaps of all that we hold dear as a follower of Christ. That turns into a vicious cycle. And this is a struggle for all of us at times. Nobody gets off the hook. 
But thankfully in this passage, verses 6 and 7, they offer us some tremendous help to come back to again and again when that sneaking suspicion that we're not measuring up in this world starts to creep back up. Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Underline that. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So when we find ourselves struggling with insecurities, we need to ask ourselves a very important question. Who are we trying to measure up to? Who are we trying to measure up to? The world stone or the cornerstone? And then, when we answer that, we need to accept a very difficult truth. The truth is, we don't measure up. We don't measure up. The reason why our insecurities have such power to them is that there's some truth in them. We know our world rages against this idea, but in reality, according to the scriptures, on my own, I don't measure up, and none of us do. But through Christ, the unacceptable who recognize that they don't measure up can repent and be accepted. Not through their own efforts, but through Jesus' work, we become recipients of grace. This doesn't just apply to one aspect of our identity, but all of who we are. And so in our insecurities, we cling to verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And when we embrace those truths and we preach them back to ourselves again and again in our insecurities, they begin to lose their power over us. That through Jesus Christ, we measure up. Now, if that's how we can apply this truth personally, when we encounter rejection from the world as a misfit over our faith, how does this truth that our new identity has shaped us for a holy community that displays God's glory, how does this apply to us as a church? Let's look at communally, communally falling short. I I can still remember uh, sitting in a circle with my family at my graduation uh, from high school uh, party, and we were sitting in the circle, and we were opening some presents and uh, talking and talking about, you know, going off to school for ministry, and I don't remember how, but somehow uh, one of the pastors that I had known uh, growing up, Pastor Rob, uh, who had uh, years ago, you know, been one of our pastors, moved away and whatnot, but still somebody I I really looked up to that came up in, in conversation. I mentioned as much about looking up to him and his work, his teaching, and and so forth, and that was when my uh, dad let me know uh, that years after Pastor Rob had moved away and was serving at another church, that he had had an affair. I was stunned. You could have knocked me down with a feather. And I remember just genuinely being saddened for him and for his family and for the church. And the irony that as I'm headed out for ministry, here I am learning about someone I looked up to in ministry having fled in the other direction. And various versions of that same story have, are, and will continue in our church. Not just with leaders, but with anyone. And many of you could share a similar story. And one of the results of a story like this one is that the church as a whole, including you, experiences rejection from the world. 
How do we respond to that kind of rejection and marginalization of the church? Well, as we look back at this text and the truth that our new identity has shaped us for a holy community that displays God's glory, I think that we find our answer. Verse 9 says, but you are, underline R, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, when we deal with our insecurities as a people of God, in the face of failures, of sin, of shortcomings, that are, are, are near or far, are big or small, famous, not so famous, we don't need to duck and hide. The accusation of sin has got us dead, dead to rights. And so we don't excuse the sin. We don't excuse the sin. But it also doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change who we are. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's possession, not because of our work, but because of Christ's work and his presence. We are only holy by God's mercy. Church, I want to entrench that into us this morning. We are only holy by God's mercy. That's our security. It is that identity that has shaped us for a holy community and none other. It's how we look at ourselves and it's how we look at others caught in sin. Church, we cannot allow the world's rejection to push us into works-based righteousness in our thinking with one another. That would destroy a community built on grace. Recognizing this allows us to call sin, sin, based on God's holiness, while still seeking to show mercy to the person. We can care for someone who's a victim of sin or for the sinner themselves. This reality is why we respond to those caught in sin differently. With humility, honesty, mercy, and looking for their restoration through repentance. Falling short as a community doesn't change who we are. That's why it's not our excellencies that we proclaim, but God's excellencies. That's why it's his glory that we display, not ours. Why we can display a different kind. Why we respond differently, not out of insecurity, as we don't hang our hat on our perfection, but on his. Anything else smacks of our self-righteous pride and calls for our repentance. Now let's take this truth across the finish line. Because we must not only apply this truth personally and with one another, but also with those outside the church as we display God's glory, not only in who we are positionally, but yes, also in what we do, how we go about things with others externally. As we look back at the text, uh, there is a certain bleakness to its outlook, that externally there is an expectation of rejection, Look back at it with me at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right, misfits and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, don't miss this, when they speak against you, not if, when, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
A Christian looks at their conduct then from the inside out. We don't just want to recognize that God has made us holy, but we want to live out of that position. We don't work for it. We live out of it, out of the DNA that we've received, the ground that God has already taken, the nature that we've already been given. While doing so, even at our best, there is still a certain level of expectation for rejection from those outside the church. A good friend of mine, uh, with a deep walk with Christ, um, once shared with me a story about a statement his daughter had made to him. Um, they, he and his wife had done their best and had raised their kids in a, in a Christian home and so forth, but when the kids hit the, the teenage years, uh, they started walking away from Christ. Well, this dad did, you know, the best he could and looked for moments where he could faithfully share uh, and witness about, about Christ and so forth with her. And in one of those conversations, his daughter responded, and she made this statement. She said, Dad, I think you're a very moral man, but I don't see anything other than that in you. Dad, I think you're a very moral man, but I don't think I see anything other than that in you. Oh, right? Friends, listen. Even when we are doing well in our faith, even when your character is being faithful with those outside the church, rejection is still normal and to some degree to be expected. And when that's our outlook, we have a certain amount of security because we have rightly identified where we really stand while we still are hopeful for their salvation. Because after all, we were no different. We were no different. And God miraculously opened our eyes and used the simple means of other people, their character, his message, to draw us to himself. So we remain hopeful, but we know that for the world to see Jesus, it will also take a miracle. And so if nothing else, we hope that our actions and our character will someday be revealed to have brought God glory. In the end, as Peter said, on the day of visitation, we hope that someday, now or later, that we will have been proved to have been a faithful witness and will be seen for what it is, for what it was. So church, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? If we're really grasping how Peter is pointing us back to this great reality, that our new identity shapes us for a holy community that, that displays God's glory. And we're seeing how that, that grows our security personally, communally, with those outside the church, as we lean more and more on God's acceptance. Then doesn't that leave you and I in a place of peace? Doesn't that leave you and I with a sense that we're accepted? That the world may push us out, the world may throw its barbs, but in Jesus, we know who we are. That in him, the misfits measure up. And that in him, we have all we need. Amen? We pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
God, we're thankful that while we were far from measuring up, you sent him. And you had mercy on us, God, that you brought us into your people, the people that no longer had one. And your graciousness, God, has known no bounds. And so, Lord, we want to reflect your glory. We want to be a people who aren't out in the world trying to make a big name for ourselves, but make your name big. Or we want to be a people who are obsessed with proclaiming your excellencies and not ours. So, Lord, would you humble us afresh while giving us a fresh vision of your glory that we would be stones, living stones, erected to show your excellence to a world that needs hope. I pray that in your name. Amen.